Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Thousands of wind turbines soared toward the sky along the Columbia River Gorge. Earlier this year, a blade came cascading down. No one was hurt, but the failure was more than just a one-off. As America increasingly moves to wind, solar, and other renewable energy, who maintains that infrastructure and keeps it safe, and who holds the industry accountable, is a big unanswered question. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, investigative reporter Ted Sickinger. We talked about when he first caught wind of this story. You see what I did there? Why Oregonians should care, what has gone wrong out at Big Low Canyon in the gorge, and much more. Here's our conversation. Ted Sickinger, thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, no problem, Andrew. Long time no see. I know. I know. Literally, we haven't seen each other in in a very long time. Um, (laughs) But... uh, I had to have you on after reading your deep dive into the wind farms on the gorge that I think a lot of people probably know about um, from driving past, and that's probably where their knowledge ends. So before we get into some of the findings of your investigation, how did this story get on your radar to begin with? Um, well, one of the landowners that's heavily featured in the story, Catherine McCullough, she originally actually emailed me back at the end of 2017. Um, so, you know, almost five years ago, um, typically it doesn't take me that long to respond. <laughs> and she was, you know, saying, you know, we live under these, um, under the Bigelow Canyon wind farm. And that if they were maintaining this better, it could be producing a lot more energy, you know, and that, that they had been frustrated with PGE for, seven plus years because the towers were down so often, you know, for weeks at a time waiting for a part or a crane. And she invited me to come out. And uh, I don't, I, at that point, I didn't have the bandwidth to do it, but it was certainly interesting to me. And we've kept in touch over the years intermittently. And she's been keeping me up to date with her growing frustrations. And um, when the blade throw happened in February, you know, I finally decided to use it as an opportunity to, to jump into this further. So that was what really ticked it off and said, okay, well, you know, there's a lot of background here that she's been sending me and this certainly seems like a remarkable event. So uh, I told my editor, I'm, you know, it's time to jump into this. And he agreed. And jump in. You did. I'm, I'm glad you did. Um, what is a blade throw? I guess for people who haven't read your piece, um, I think, you know, they can obviously make a guess, but what's a blade throw and what happened out on a big low Canyon? So a blade throw is when a blade becomes completely detached from uh, the turbine 
where it is clamped to the router. PG, the euphemism they were using for this was a, a blade liberation. And there are incidents <laughs> where, you know, pieces of blades come off, they become delaminated, and, you know, a, a large piece of a blade will come off, a fragment. A, a blade throw is when uh, the entire blade right down to you know, where it clamps into the rotor um, comes off of a piece and flies off into the night, which is what took place at Bigelow Canyon. This blade failure was due to the, the failure of bolts that, that clamp the blade to the turbine rotor. Um, those are big industrial bolts that bear the force of the blade and the wind, um, and they can fail over time due to fatigue and corrosion and continued stress. And when that happens, it can lead to a, a cascading problem by overloading the other bolts um, that are there. Each of these Vestas turbines is attached by 72 bolts. I, I got conflicting information from Vestas, which said it was 71 and PGE 72. Um, but each blade um, has upwards of 70 bolts that's attaching it to the turbine. And it turns out PGE had been operating turbines out there that it knew had broken bolts. And I don't have the records to go all the way back in time, but there were at least four turbines where broken blade bolts were discovered in 2021 and PGE kept running them while waiting for spare parts. In one case for nearly a year, you know, PGE Investus and Siemens all say that can be within operating specs in certain situations if they have additional inspections, um, et cetera, um, but both refuse to tell me what those operating specs actually are and, you know, how many blade bolts can be loose or broken and you can continue to operate it. So after the blade bolt or, or the blade throw, they discovered another four Siemens turbines with broken blade bolts. Um, and they did full bolt replacements on four of their Vestas turbines. And then months later, it found two more Vestas turbines with broken blade bolts. Um, and it found another turbine with a cracked blade bearing, which is another major issue that can lead to catastrophic failure of the, the blades. And it appears as if they've now stopped running turbines with broken blade bolts. And I know, Ted, you, um, one of the experts who you quoted throughout your piece, uh, industry expert who's, who's not active, right? He, he says that all of those procedures are highly abnormal and worrisome. Um, yes. I mean, it, the, the broken blade bearing, he said, was a, a very big deal that would require you to really examine um, the entire turbine. Um, the, uh, I also, um, referenced, there are a bunch of studies out there on broken blade bolts and wind turbines and they happen. Um, but that it's of paramount importance to note or to know whether or not this is simply a, a one-off instance or is happening in turbines, you know, throughout the wind farm. Um, and in this case, it, it looks like this was a wider problem. I've had the joy, I guess, of seeing, you know, I think a lot of people probably have as well as you drive along, you know, Interstate 84, maybe you're driving alongside a massive blade um, or some piece of these windmills that are headed to one of these farms. But can you give us a scale of like how big is a blade uh, on one of these windmills? So these blades in particular, they weigh seven tons, 
I'm sorry, eight tons. Um, so 16,000 pounds. Each of them is about 130 feet long. So the wind sweep, you know, collectively for all the three blades attached to them can be, you know, quite huge. Um, the towers themselves, um, the rotor is at a height of about 265 feet. So a blade, you know, kind of up from there, that's, you know, another 130 feet. You know, so the towers are 400 feet tall. These particular towers we're talking about, and they are getting larger yeah. all the time. The new generation of wind turbines, you know, can be 550 and 600 feet. The offshore turbines are even larger. These are mammoth machines. And I mean, I was looking at some of the photographs we had, and one of which we used in the paper, um, you know, the perspective is is tough to get because yeah. the machines are so big, they, they look like, you know, oftentimes they're closer to structures that are in the foreground than they are. But they're, you know, they're truly immense and, you know, they, they weigh a lot. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, you, you do see them going down the gorge quite regularly. And, uh, you know, the, the turbines themselves are super impressive in the landscape because they just, you know, loom so large in it. So take us out to Bigelow Canyon. Where is it, you know, in the gorge and, and what's it like and, and what do the McCulloughs do out there? So Bigelow is about 110 miles east of Portland in Sherman County, just south of the Columbia River. So if you, if you were driving out I-84 and got off at the Rufus exit and then headed up into the rolling hills, south of there, you're immediately in the middle of Bigelow. And there are several other wind farms in that area stretching south and to the east. So you can keep driving for a long time out there and there are wind turbines as far as you can see. And this is agricultural land. It's mostly used for wheat farming. It's very sparsely populated. But these days, if you were to, say, drive to eastern Sherman County and then look back toward Mount Hood, it's a pretty industrialized landscape. You know, there's hundreds of these big machines and the, the really high transmission lines that carry their energy. And, you know, opinions vary on that. And some people think the turbines are pretty cool. There's these big four and 500 foot Mercedes emblems spinning on the landscape. And there are <laughs> others, of course, that you know, don't like any of the visual impacts and have weighed in on these projects in protest because of that. So Kathy McCullough is a retired 747 airline pilot. She's a very sharp person, very credible, <laughs> very persistent, not only with me, but but with PGE. And Kevin McCuller, her husband, is a, a fourth-generation farmer out there. His great-grandparents established their farm, and he's also you know, a very straightforward guy. Um, he's out under these turbines all the time. He farms under about half of the 217 turbines at Bigelow Canyon. And they have 13 on their land and they get payments from PGE based on the, the energy production from those turbines. And they're out there and they talk to the wind techs all the time. Um, and, you know, as a farmer, he's running these huge car um, combines and he knows a few things about taking care of equipment. Um, their son, Colt, also farms out there with them. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's important to keep in mind as you read this story that that these are people that want and have a stake in the, the project really succeeding and they were highly supportive of it um in the planning and building phases they went and you know sort of testified on behalf of it in various public forums um, kevin mccullough was in a promotional video that we linked to in the story 
mm-hmm. um, you know, praising all the benefits that were coming to the county, you know, the lease payments that they were getting, um, how that would make it easier to go to the bank um, on a new piece of equipment or to help his son get established farming, construction and operation jobs they were creating, you know, benefits for uh, nearby businesses, tax payments. Um, so we also posted a video interviewing the McCulloughs today, and the, the contrast is just remarkable. And, and they and and I spoke to uh, many of the landowners out there who were expressing similar concerns and are quoted in the story are, are deeply angry and frustrated with PGE. You know, the lease payments haven't lived up to their expectations. They're frustrated that the turbines are down, you know, sometimes for months at a time during windy weather. They feel like there's a growing safety risk out there from pieces falling off machines to the oil from the turbines that's spitting into their fields and transformers that have been failing. And they feel like PGE hasn't been listening to them. I can't tell you how many times that Kathy McCullough says she feels like she's been treated like a dumb farmer. You just kind of alluded to a lot of your findings, which you lay out, you know, at the top of your piece and very uh, clear points. You know, when, when you're digging into a story like this, Ted, like, is there a point where all the pieces started to, to fit together? Like, can you take us behind the veil for the readers who, you know, obviously this, this, um, this woman reached out to you, like you said, like seven years ago now, that's seven. I'm not good at math. However, many five, years ago five. now and, uh, <laughs> five years ago, well, the pandemic counts for a couple of added ones. Um, but yeah. you know, when, when did you start to realize that it was more than you know, there's more than meets the eye here. It's not just about one blade. There's just so much more going on out there that everyday Oregonians don't know about. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if this was just a single blade incident, then, you know, uh, this might not amount <laughs> to a real story. Um, I mean, it's interesting um, that this thing threw a, a blade a hundred yards into a field and, you know, showered bolts all over the field. But you know, as an isolated incident, it, it wouldn't have been worth spending the time on. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I certainly, as I said, the McCullers are very credible. You need to back that up with with the facts. And it took a lot, lot of time to gather. I mean, I really, you know, it was clear from a variety of compliance reports that I had from the state that the availability of these turbines um, had declined and was under, and were underperforming. And availability, meaning the, sort of the reliability to produce energy, um, was below other wind farms of comparable age, and that the wind farm was underperforming other neighboring wind farms. It visually, I mean, you go out there and it's quite clear that um, something is happening. Uh, with these turbines, you know, there's dozens of the Vestas machines that are are coated in oil and lubricants, pieces of the machinery that have fallen off, hatches that have fallen off, so open areas, you know, there's a one turbine that's lost its nose cone and rotor frame and, and you know, some of that PG lowered to the ground, but, you know, some of it fell off. And, you know, I was able early on to get a list of incidents that had taken place. Wind farm operators are required to report any incidents of potentially affecting public health and safety to the Department of Energy within 72 hours. And PGE immediately, you know, stuck out because they had 
sort of an outsized number of these incidents. Most of them happened to be transformer failures um, and ruptures that had leaked, you know, 3,000 gallons of oil into uh, the soil surrounding the turbine pads um, and then required very expensive and time-consuming cleanups that kept those offline. But there were other incidents in there as well. As I got talking to the landowners, they began sharing pictures and experiences with me about, well, you know, I found, you know, a dozen hatch doors. These are kind of 10-pound doors that sit up at the rotor um, and, and wind techs used to kind of climb out and, and service these things that have just fallen off the machines. And those didn't show up in the database, and um, nor did, you know, broken blade bolts that um, PGE and Vestas had found under the machines. So pieces falling off and falling 265 feet to the, the ground. And um, by the standards that the energy department was articulating to me, these are all public safety incidents that need to be reported. And, you know, to this day, PGE hasn't done so. And, you know, that's potentially in violation of its uh, operating agreement with the state. FSEC had been hearing about these transformer failures out there for a long time. And finally, in January, called in one of the company reps to explain what was happening. And apparently the transformers that they use on these wind turbines, the demands on them are very irregular. You know, the wind sort of goes up and down, as do the demands on the transformer, and that can degrade the oil inside and lead to, um, you know, gas buildup or dissolved gas buildup, and um, some of the insulators in there can fail. And if the pressure gets too high, they can rupture, they can explode, they can um, have fires. PGE has had two transformer fires out there. Just the widespread nature of this um, and the, the, in the totality of, of all the issues they were having out there. And again, I started to get some of the correspondence that PGE had with landowners and they were acknowledging that, you know, their, their maintenance program was failing to stay ahead of the failure curve out there and that they needed to evolve it from one that had um, previously focused on, um, you know, just replacing main components as they fail to one that was much more focused on um, preventive maintenance. And again, these are really big industrial machines as they age, there are lots of components, they do fail, you do, you know, and you have to, in order to keep them producing efficiently and, um, you know, maximizing the output for them, you have to put money into them. And I found that PGE's maintenance expenses out there had fallen by 40% since 2013. They spent 22 million back then. And they've just been on this regular stair step down um, and were $13 million last year. They went into um, the Oregon Public Utility Commission this year for a rate increase. And they forecast that maintenance expenses at big low were gonna be 10 million this year. That's less than half of what they spent. Um, back in 2013, and, and this at a time when there's been major, major inflation in the component yeah. prices for wind turbines, and um, just in general, they're they're aging. They need more maintenance, and it doesn't appear that PGE was putting a whole lot of money into this compared to what they had before. The maintenance piece of your reporting was what really was captivated me a lot, Ted, because it it feels like there are so many 
implications here when there's such a national movement now to with clean energy um you know the inflation reduction act just passed through uh congress uh you know by the thinnest of margins and it you know it 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 seems like uh you know, at least in my in my brain, maybe my simple brain, I thought, oh, you know, clean energy, it's easier. Wind and solar, maybe it's not something you need to have as rigorous a maintenance schedule as as I don't know a uh, a coal fired plant. But your reporting kind of points to the fact that this is still an industry, right? Like industry needs to be maintained. Yeah, as I mentioned, these are big industrial machines. They have hundreds of components in them. And, uh, you know, they need regular maintenance to operate efficiently and produce electricity, particularly as they age. They do annual sort of torque and tensioning inspections out there. Um, the, you know, there are regularly pieces of equipment breaking and need replacing. And again, this was sort of the, the landowner's main contention that, um, that they weren't being adequately maintained and were, you know, going down regularly for extended periods. So again, Vestas manufactured 76 of the turbines out there, including the one that threw the blade. Um, it's also, you know, the maintenance contractor. And I think they signed a new four-year contract in 2021. That was my understanding and talking to some folks from PGE. PGE ended up telling me that they could end up suing Vestas, um, which is the reason that they're keeping the results of the investigation into the blade throw confidential. But again, it, it, I mean, if you were out there, you, it's not hard to see that that some of these machines are are having troubles and are missing pieces of equipment, and uh, <laughs> you know, and don't appear to be getting the maintenance they need to. And the again, the 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 money they're spending. The maintenance reports that I was able to obtain and outline many of very specific issues. Again, they have just, you know, gearboxes that are going down, transformers are breaking. They, they have sensors in these machines that signal, you know, you know when, the, when the tower is vibrating, when the blades are vibrating. Um, they had a, a piece of a meteorology station out there that's been down for, it's getting into close to two years now. Um, because of a mouse chew that hasn't been um, replaced or fixed out there. Maybe they don't need it. I don't know. But the, the maintenance reports show that, you know, again, these, these pieces of equipment can be down for extended periods of time. And every dollar that, or I'm sorry, every kilowatt of energy that PGE doesn't generate at Big Low is um, a kilowatt of energy that they have to go buy or generate somewhere else. And that can be both more expensive and come with a sort of a higher carbon footprint if they're generating at one of their gas plants, say, or, you know, buying it on the wholesale market. Um, so the, and another important piece of the economics on this is the production tax credits that um, the project earns for every kilowatt hour of energy. I think they get 2.1 cents, which doesn't sound like a lot, but they generate a lot of kilowatt hours of, of energy and it, it brings in big dollars. Those are used to credit ratepayers' power costs. And if they're not generating energy, they're not generating tax credits. And so ratepayers aren't getting those credits either. Yeah, the ratepayers aren't getting the credits. The farmers aren't getting the extra benefit from the lease payments from these operations. 
what I, I guess what I fail to understand is like, what do you attribute, you know, PG's lack of attention to this? I mean, uh, obviously they don't have the maintenance contract, right? It goes to Vestas, the Portland based company whose, uh, blades, uh, are spinning up above the McCullough's property. But like, why isn't PGE more invested given that they have skin in this as well? Wind turbine production in the United States goes down quite abruptly after 10 years of operation. And, and researchers at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab have looked at this question and, you know, that the liability declines pretty markedly and, and far more abruptly than in Europe or Asia. And their theory was that as these equipments age and they age out of the 10 year eligibility window for the production tax credit, um, it's no longer worth the, the same level of maintenance. And so they skimp on maintenance. Or alternatively, that, um, you know, the deferred maintenance while the projects were within that 10 year eligibility, um, stack up and um, lead to increased breakdowns. Um, again, PGE, um, they maintain that they're, they're doing a fine job out there. You know, they're kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth. They're you know, telling landowners, yeah, we need to mature our maintenance strategy here. But they also told me, no, you know, th this, this project is, is running well and we're managing it for longevity. And, uh, you know, we have aging machines here. And, uh, but they're not spending what they used to on maintenance. And between rate cases, if they don't spend what they have forecasted to regulators, um, that money drops to their bottom line. Um, so, you know, again, um, definitively what's happening there, um, I couldn't tell you. Uh, I, can, I can hazard some guesses there. Um, there are, you know, there's definitely economic motivations and in, in not spending as much money on Biglow. And as it turns out, you know, a lot of wind farms, as they're aging, they end up getting repowered, which essentially means that they, they replace 80% of the components. They tend to bring in larger blades that are more efficient. Um, and, um, you know, again, they're, they're, renewed eligibility for tax credits makes that an economic transaction. That's something that PGE is thinking about doing with the 76 bestest turbines that it has out there. Um, and, you know, that decision may be forthcoming because the, the new round of production tax credits from the federal government are good for companies that begin construction before 2025. So that could be an important piece of that decision. You know, when when we look at Bigelow Canyon and how does it fit into Oregon's wind industry in terms of the age of the turbines and the number of uh, windmills out there? Is it is it just a run of the mill, or is it one of the larger ones? Can you put it in perspective. Yes, there's nearly fifty wind farms in the state, and that's a number that includes multiple phases of some of these projects. So Biglow was the largest in the state when it was completed in 2010, um, has 217 turbines, against 76 of them are Vestas, and another 141 are um, Siemens turbines. Um, they have a total capacity of 450 megawatts. Um, again, that's about, you know, sort of on an average production level, which is much lower than their, their highest capacity because the wind doesn't blow all the time. That's enough energy to... Um, serve about 125,000 homes or 120,000 homes. 
There's about 2,300 turbines in Oregon. So this project makes up um, nearly 10% of them. It's still the second largest project in the state in terms of capacity. Um, it was built when a lot of other wind farms were going up here. There was kind of a very big wind boom here in the sort of 2008 to 2012 mm -hmm. timeframe. So it's, you know, there are plenty of projects that age here. Oregon, you know, um, as you're reporting and our colleague, um, you know, Rob Davis, lots of different reporting, um, has kind of pointed out, we love to think of ourselves as a green place. Um, does Oregon have, uh, more windmills than other or wind farms than other states, or do we punch above our, our weight, so to speak in that front? We do. There are concentrations of, um, you know, wind farms across the country and we are the 10th, um, highest wind capacity in the United States. And, you know, you've got Texas, Iowa, a lot of Midwest states, you know, mm. um, New Mexico, Washington is, is, doesn't get into that top 10, uh, California. So yeah, we're, we're a big producer and largely that's because, um, Historically, we had the transmission system to bring this energy to market. Uh, the gorge is obviously a windy place, but there are, you know, Wyoming and Montana are a lot windier. Um, but we had the existing transmission system in place from the hydroelectric dams that could send this energy down to California that could get it into the load centers in, in Portland population centers and um initially i think about 70 percent of the energy that was being produced in the gorge um was actually shipped to utilities in california over those transmission lines um, mm. it's unclear how much wind in the future will be developed in places like the gorge we apparently have a very um high potential for offshore wind and that is being explored by federal agencies right now. And there is some concern that um, by the, the fishing community in particular, that that is going to take valuable, um, you know, fishing uh, areas off the plate. Um, and uh, those are truly huge machines. They're going to be floating on platforms out in the Pacific, hmm. where obviously there's a lot of wind, but, you know, maintenance issues will probably be fairly significant out there too. Yeah, I guess before I let you go, I mean, what, how should we think about this when, you know, there's been this big celebration, like I said, I mean, it's not just wind energy, but just clean energy, um, back, back, uh, from the inflation reduction act and, you know, PGE has been winding down, you know, it's cold fired plants as you've been reporting on for years. And I guess, how should we be thinking of this piece in the broader context of, where we're at in in terms of our our energy situation in Oregon. PGE itself has a plan to be emissions free by 2040. And in order to get there, Pacific Core is on sort of a uh, maybe a less aggressive path because it has um, a big fleet of legacy coal plants that are going to continue to run for a while, but they too are rapidly building their renewables fleet and every other utility uh, in the United States is, is to some extent trying to access the same, same stuff. And so, you know, for PGE to actually get anywhere close to a greenhouse gas free, um, a carbon free, uh, you know, electrical grid, 
here in Oregon, it's going to have to supersize um, its fleet of renewable energy projects. And if, you know, again, if we want carbon free energy, we need to take our existing projects and wring every kilowatt we can out of them for as long as we can, um, because there are certainly price implications of all this. And uh, again, I mean, if we're, ratepayers are paying for this. And you know, to me, in this story, the landowners are, are a proxy for the ratepayers. You know, the, the Oregon consumers want green energy. This is a billion dollar project. They're paying for it. Um, you know, if there's any hope of, of getting to the goals we have, uh, we need to be running these things and wringing all the energy we can out of them. Um, I quoted one of our ratepayer advocates, Bob Jenks, in the story. He says, if we're going to make the transition to clean energy, we need to hold the utilities responsible for managing these projects properly. And I, I do think that's the case. And I don't think to this point... Um, that kind of focus has been part of what regulators have been looking at and, and it needs to increase. Yeah. I got to say, Ted, I wasn't prepared to read about oil slicks under, you know, wind turbines. That wasn't something I was prepared to read. Um, and it raised a lot of, you know, bigger questions there. Yeah. Oil slicks may be putting it a little strongly, but you know, I was certainly oil specs. Um, you know, I was flabbergasted when I saw the condition of some of the turbines at Big O' Canyon. You know, you know, there's there's many of them out there are caked in dark oil and the sunshine. You can see the lubricants kind of glinting off of them. It's all over the blades and the towers. And again, it's not confined to the turbines. It spits on the ground. We have a picture in this piece that McCullough sent me that that um, they parked one of their trucks during harvest under, um, or not under, but nearby one turbine for about 30 minutes. And the hood of it is heavily spotted with oil, you know, and the, the ground nearby is heavily spotted with oil. And that's a, you know, it's a, it's an amount probably during any one 24 hour period that isn't going to cross the threshold of what the department of environmental quality um, requires reporting on, right. which is a full barrel of 42 gallons of oil. But again, the, the landowners out there are worried that over time, this is you know leaching into their soil, you know potentially the water table over time. Um, we didn't test the soil out there, but again, it's 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 not hard to see when you're there. We also published some pictures that uh, Kathy McCullough got from a contractor showing the inside of a turbine out there. Um, she shared those with Senator Wyden, and it was it was filthy inside it was caked in oil and then you know and again that it's not particularly surprising given their outside condition but when i went out there and toured the place with pge they brought me for for a tour they sort of shut down one of the turbines and brought us out there and we were going to climb but apparently it was too hot so they sent one of their techs up in there and it, that turbine was rather spotless and again pge acknowledges that the they're leaking and it also says it's a fixable problem, um, but it's one that's been going on for years. And they, they could install retrofit kits that would seal them. But at this point, it hasn't decided whether to do it while it waits around and tries to see whether it's going to replace all of them. Um, I asked the, the Oregon Department of Energy whether that was a reportable incident. And uh, 
they are not, <laughs> they weren't certain. They said it hadn't been reported to them and they might investigate the incidents, you know, if, if it were, you know, and I'd, I'd say that this has been very, very loosely regulated. There is really no um, yeah. national state or, um, you know, local mechanism to report operating incidents and equipment failures. Oregon's is really one of the best that I was able to find, but it has still been really loose. And, and mm. you know, again, the Department of Energy says they've begun, you know, they've gotten a lot more robust um, in their compliance program over time. They've hired additional people. And it's also true that what they're requiring of um operators of newly licensed wind farms is a lot more robust reporting about um, equipment failures and downtime, et cetera, but they can't apply any of that retroactively to, to our aging fleet that is out there already. So we really don't have any idea, um, you know, how, how frequent some of these problems are elsewhere. Well, and I think that just hammers home the point of, you know, this is out in Sherman County and Gillum County or in Wasco County, wherever out in areas where there's not a lot of people and you kind of extrapolate then nationally. <laughs> a lot of these wind farms are out in areas where maybe there isn't a lot of uh, uh, foot traffic, so to speak. So maybe out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, I, I, that's true. Although, and again, there is no national reporting database, but there, there's certainly a lot of groups that do follow anecdotally these happen and these kinds of incidents do take place in most of the states with, well, in all of the states with large wind fleets. Um, and again, Oregon um, has had uh, more rigorous requirements and they're getting more rigorous still. We'll see how that plays out. Um, again, a lot of the stuff that, that I was reporting on, they hadn't heard. And so they hadn't investigated it. And, uh, you know, and they said unless an operator and or, you know, a member of the public reports some of this stuff, we really have no way of knowing about it or, or investigating it. Well, fascinating stuff. And you're forging new territory here, I guess, and informing the state about uh, what's happening in our backyard. And uh, thanks for all your reporting on it and for taking time to talk about it. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared a link to Ted's investigative piece in the episode notes. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show and tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism and work like Ted Sickinger's is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.